Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 27th, 2016. We will be doing our light episode today as we continue to work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to see if it actually squares with what God's Word really says when we put it back in context. And over again, we find that it it just ain't squaring with uh, what so many people are saying. Now, part of the way you you learn discernment is by learning, by hearing good exegetical teaching. As somebody preaches or teaches through large portions of Scripture or entire books, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. We are up to section, segment eight, as we continue to work through these uh, these lessons, and so let's get to it. Here's the next installment. Good morning, everyone. We left off in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and of course we got catapulted from these words of Solomon into the New Testament, both Paul's words about judgment and then Jesus' words about judgment. Uh, judgment is important for Ecclesiastes uh, because it hints at the pos- at a, a possible resolution. It hints at it. Um, it guesses at it. It is a fact that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Okay, but just how that's going to work out is left somewhat mysteriously and with an air of danger unpredictability, not least of which because we've seen Solomon play with these themes of the righteous and the wicked in ways that, you know, sort of twist your noodle a little bit. You realize that maybe the righteous aren't really so righteous and the wicked aren't so wicked. All right, well, we fleshed that out 
last week. I simply wanted to mention that because that's where we left off, and that's the immediate context. So uh, you can see that in verse 17 of chapter 3. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Okay. Uh, next phrase is parallel. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. Again, we noted that at first sounds optimistic. Ah, that we might prove, prove ourselves worthy of, li- of life. Prove ourselves worthy to be his children. Rather, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man <laughs> that God is testing them that they may see that they, they themselves are but beasts. All right. We've noted how the height of human wisdom here in the 20th and 21st century is exactly this, that man is but beast. Right? When you look at Darwinian evolution and all of its transmorgifications uh, up to this point, this, the principle is that man and beast are the same. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Um, they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. So again, using your eyes, using your reason, using what's available to, to you under the sun, you conclude that the human race is not a special snowflake. Right? The human race is just one animal amongst others. You can see that in deed, and you can see that in end. Right? And that sheds a dark cloud over the previous verse, over this verse of judgment. God will judge the wicked and the righteous. And then he goes on to say he's testing men, but in such a way that we will find out that we are all animals, namely that we will find out we are all wicked. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes. That's the way of Solomon's logic. Okay. Now, might God's judgment even so change things? Fill the empty void. Fill the hole. Make meaning out of meaninglessness. I think that Solomon holds out that possibility. We'll see that again at the end of the book. But... As it sits, there's a very bleak and dark side to that judgment as well, because God is one to judge in truth. All right, in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? In other words, when you see an animal die or a person die, it looks basically the same. You can't tell with your eyes. You would have to have special revelation from God. You would have to have faith. You would have to have belief uh, that... Something different is happening there because just according to your eye and a reason, uh, a dead dog and a dead man are basically the same thing. You can't tell that the spirit goes up or down. You can't tell that the animal spirit goes down and the man's spirit goes up, uh, which is a poetic way of saying you can't tell that there's anything higher about a man's death or what goes on with his spirit than with an animal's death and what goes on with the spirit in life there. It's all the same. So, you know, Solomon again is acknowledging the bleakness of this world and the bleakness of the world that's right there according to our eyes. Now, as Christians, we don't want to deny that. We want to answer that. 
We want to articulate what Solomon's articulating and then answer it with Christ. But unfortunately, American Christianity is sort of in the way of negating this. Oh no, life really is all puppy dogs and smiles and kittens. Oh no, when you die, you you know you immediately uh, see a bright light and go to heaven, and that you know. Oh no, and and they don't give validity to this. Rather, they try to can- cancel it out as if it's too dark to even look at. No, no, this might make us sad. We ha- we we have to stay perpetually happy. Um, that's that's what a truly strong and faithful Christian is, right? Pathologically optimistic. Um, and against this, with Solomon, why this part of the reason why this book is so refreshing, if you find it so, I do, is because it, it says no to all that nonsense. Um, you know, it's not all smiles and kittens and puppy dogs, which we all know. We just would, you know, so much of the world wants to live self-deceived. It's not that way. Now, just because it's not that way, does that mean we end in despair? No. We have an answer in Christ, and the answer of Christ takes on the very contour of uh, the darkness that Solomon here describes. But that's what's so refreshing, is Solomon's going to say it as it is and teach us to do the same. Luther speaks of the theology of glory. We would call that the theology of happy clappy. The theology of happy clappy calls good evil and evil good couple concrete examples. How does happy clappy call evil good? One concrete example, when God has stricken you with cancer and you're happy cla- and you're laying in bed in excruciating pain and you know that death is near, your happy clappy theologian friend comes and says, God is working some good out of this. Just Just believe, you'll probably get better. And if you don't, surely he's teaching you some lesson. This too is blessed. They call evil good. And they thereby also render themselves completely foolish in the ears of the sufferer, let alone in the ears of the world. In the ears of any honest person, let's put it that way. Completely foolish. You know, you see the same happy clappyism when... uh, You know, something happens to one person's advantage and not to another, and the proclamation is, God is good. Yeah, from one very distinct, you know, I, I found $20 on the, on the street. God is good. <laughs> Where did that come from? Did it fall from the sky? No, it fell from someone's pocket. <laughs> Do you see the problem? Uh, you know. Or, or like, uh, or, you know, someone, someone does. Let's, let's go one step closer. Let's go one step more controversial. Someone does, in a miraculous way, recover from some ailment or some disease or some sickness. Doctors never expected them to live, and they did. And, of course, we give credit to God for that. In fact, there's no healing. You can throw any medicine you want at anything. If God's not going to grant the healing, it's not going to be there. Okay? Let's say that God grants the healing, and the healing's there. Now, here's the controversial point. Someone proclaims, God is good. Was he any less good if that person died? You see, how, you see the problem with happy clappyism. 
It's superficial, it's shallow, it's distorted, and then at its most base level, it blatantly calls evil good. All right, how does it call good evil? Happy clappyism, theology of glory. Baptism, it calls evil. At least baptism is biblically presented. A water and word that actually unites you with Christ buries you in his death, in that tomb with him, and raises you up out of that tomb with him in the sure and certain hope of a resurrection of your body on the last day. How many people say, that is good, I want to know more about that? Anyone who does is not a happy, clappy theologian or a theology of glory theologian. Theology of glory despises good things, like what? Christ says... Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. Happy Clappyism says, Ew, his body and blood? Evil. Cannibalism? It's evil. It's so, oh, it's sick. Yeah, the cross is important, but my Jesus is off the cross. My Jesus is alive. Never mind that Paul says preach Christ crucified, but okay. uh, No, don't, uh, you know, the cross is important, but I don't want all of the theology to be a word of the cross, as Paul calls it. I don't, want, I don't want that. Why? Because these are God's works and they are good, but to happy clappyism, to theology of glory, they are evil. You can see this in folks, maybe you can see it in yourself, who are more interested in God doing some stupid little miracle like healing this person or giving some sign or giving a special, uh, you know, perception of his presence through a sunset. That's all one mode of theology, and there's another mode of theology that gathers around the baptismal font, the pulpit, and the altar, and says, here is God. Do you see the difference? One is a theology of glory, and the other is a theology of the cross, as Luther says. Okay, so uh, these themes uh, bear themselves out in our own lives, just as they did 500 years ago in Luther's own context, and trace themselves all the way back even to Ecclesiastes, all right, and are evident where Ecclesiastes can speak, uh, Solomon can speak as a theologian of the cross. Call the thing what it is. Men die like dogs, and it's evil, and it's vanity, and it's meaningless. Does that mean there's no answer? No, it means the answer is Christ. Uh, But the answer is not trying to negate or change the fact that it is meaningless, ugly, and vain. Does that make sense? That distinction, that way of theology? Okay, so then, uh, we let Solomon speak with full throat and we utter our hearty amen and we can try to conform ourselves to this way of speaking, calling evil, evil, and then calling good, good. All right. So, uh, verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now, in the context of what we've read so far, is that a good lot? Not really. So within the lot that you've been given, okay, rejoice in what you have. 
which is sort of the paradoxical nature of Ecclesiastes. Rejoice in what God's given you, but realize that it's just your lot. Rejoice in the beauty of the world, but realize it's subject to times and seasons and cycles that are futile and meaningless. Rejoice in work, the work of your hands, the toil that you choose, even realizing it's ultimately meaningless. Okay, then the final line here of this uh, line of thought. Who can bring him, that is, who can bring a man to see what will be after him? And the answer, again, with Ecclesiastes' way of doing theology is no one can. You don't know what, what will come after you. You can't know what will come after you. So it's bleak. All right? Enjoy what you can enjoy, but realize it's bleak and black. Now, the implication is that we have to be saved from this, right? Okay, that gives us a nice little break uh, before we sort of go back to this theme of human wickedness in the next chapter. Are there any questions or comments from this week or from last? One up. Okay, we'll get you next, Barry. Steve in the back. One um, one that you forgot about the happy clappy, um, mm-hmm. calling evil good. Yeah. Oops, sorry, my bad. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, that, that was sin. No, right. no, it's just my bad, not a big right. deal. <laughs> yeah, good point, Steve. The refusal to call sin, sin. Yeah. Um, the insistence upon not speaking that way of sin or of its corollaries, Judgment, wrath, etc. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you have that very different anthropology that comes about as of that, don't you? Like, I'm a sinner because I'm a human being who happens to accidentally sin once in a while, right? I'm a sinner because I sin, as opposed to I'm a sinner and therefore I sin. Therefore, everything I do is tainted with sin. Very different, isn't it? Very different. Worlds apart in terms of anthropology and theology. I don't know much about the doctrine of vocation, but it seems like this would tie into it. Rejoice in the work you've been given. That is your calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether God gives you a, a calling which is, uh, I guess, good or difficult, it's, mm-hmm. it's God's calling still. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I think in light of Christ, this is what I was trying to get at. I still don't know how to get at it. I probably can't do it today either. Uh, the peculiar nature of good works in this framework is that they're actually remotely interesting. They're not boring. They're subversive. To be happy in one's work while in the paradox of knowing that everything I do is essentially futile and meaningless, and yet to find happy and, uh, happiness and meaning in that. Now, again, that only goes so far outside of the light of Christ, but in the light of Christ, that takes on a new and radical meaning. You know, our meaningless deeds are written as eternal by God. You know, that's that Revelation text, their works follow them. You know, our vocations, uh, I mean, have you ever thought about the, the, the work you do? 
Okay? In service to your neighbor, in service to your boss, in service to your customers, and ser- is pretty much just spitting in the wind. I mean, in the first place, it doesn't go anywhere and do anything, or it doesn't seem to. What little good it does seems quickly erased or eroded by evil. And in the end, it probably wasn't worth it, and it probably didn't make much difference. Listen to people's eulogies. I probably shouldn't say this. They're ridiculous, because they're just all lies. Uh, I'm sorry, I listen to a lot of eulogies. They're, they're, no one here, of course. No one here. They're all, they're, they're all fibs. They're all fibs. Because they, uh, and, and hear what I mean by, by the fib or the lie, is that this person's life mattered, meant something. They accomplished something. And by golly, I've got to stand up and scream into the black abyss that this life actually had meaning. And again, because we're by nature glory theologians, happy clappy theologians, we say, yeah, 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 it did. No, it didn't. Not like that. It didn't. Not like that at all. And then, of course, there's the crasser lies, like this person's the greatest person ever in the whole world. You weren't on speaking terms with them. (laughs) You hadn't talked to her for two years. How dare you stand up here and say that? Anyway, uh, it's all fibs. Why? Because at the place of death, that is the place of great crisis. That's where people's theology comes out. And you you don't have to go to a funeral. You can watch the news. After they interview someone who's tragically died, Gang member hit by bus, and then the mother. Well, he had his uh, he had his shortcomings, but he was really the greatest person ever. And I can't. Why? Why would God do this? Now, I don't mean to mock and make fun, okay, but I mean for you to listen critically at the time of death to what people say, because it is theology, without realizing it's theology. It is an accusation of God. It is a rebellion against the idea that the wages of sin is death. And ma'am, your sin, your son, I'm sorry for your loss, was a sinner and now he has died. And you're crying out against that. I understand the emotion, but you need to understand what God has to say to you, right? But without that, they're like sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus says. On one side, you pity uh, on the other side, you stand aghast at the, at the nature of fallen humanity and the state of our theology. Okay. Every single human being is a theologian, whether they realize it or not. And the time where that bears itself out so obviously is at the time of death. What do you say about death? And the modus operandi in multi-multi-form is that human beings self-justify one another and ourselves. That is the essence of what that woman is saying who's just lost her, her gangster son tragically. That is the essence of, of just about every eulogy, unless it's an explicitly Christ-centered eulogy. Okay, The essence is justifying the existence, the purpose, or the meaning of that person's life which cannot be done apart from Christ. Or else what Solomon says comes and cuts it all down and calls it what it is, fibs and lies. Man's life and animal's life is no different. We're all dust and we all go back to the dust. 
It's all meaningless and vain and dark. Okay, now with Christ, that all changes. But without Christ, you got people sprinkling pepper on dog crap. Look, this will make it taste better. <laughs> Trust me. It'll, it'll make death go away if I just explain it as not really death or not really ugly. It will make the ugliness of this loss and this meaningless life seem better if I try to tell you that it had meaning. Right? Against all of this, the Holy Spirit thunders through Solomon's mouth and pen and says, No. No. There's another answer, but it's not one that's going to be found in your mouth. It's the word of God that he speaks, that he sends written in human flesh. That's the answer that matters. Okay. Back to to, uh, theology of glory and calling good things evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said that they deny the sacraments altogether for instance, or they just minimize them, downplay them in favor of what they can do. Which is it? Yeah, which is a form of hatred. And that's, that's what I'm getting at. Um, it's a form of despising. Uh, when you take the things that God and his apostles lift up and preach over and over, and then you have another preacher who's, who's preaching them, minimize, either doesn't mention them, excludes them from the verses he's talking about. I heard a very fascinating sermon on Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded. And the entire sermon omitted saying anything about those words, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just omitted it. Okay? That's a form of despising what is good. And it's a subtle way of saying what is good is evil not worthy of our consideration, to be poo-pooed, to be put down, not that important, just symbolic of what's really important, which in that theology always directs itself back where? I'm what's important. What's happening in my heart is what's important. Right? How I'm progressing in my Christian walk with God, that's what's important. Okay. And again, against that, uh, the law of God thunders because... Well, as our reformers defined it, that's the very essence and nature of sin, is for the self to be curved in on the self. In curvatus in se. Okay? The self curved in on itself so that my religion, even though I say it's all about God or all about Jesus, at the end of the day, materially, it's all about me. This is Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, where on page three or whatever it is, he says, it's all about God. And then for the next 294 pages, it's all about me. And Kravatos and say, self curved in upon itself. Uh, the old Adam, this is what Luther saw so brilliantly, and were ever a student of, of his insights, that the old Adam is first and foremost a theologian. And he has what he elevates and loves and cherishes, and he has what he poo-poos, despises, and sets aside. And Luther noticed the correlation that in the theology of the old Adam, what is always proclaimed and promoted is the human being. That's what I mean by eulogies. It's what you see. What is despised and cast aside is the true God, the true Christ, Christ crucified and raised, and then the gifts that Christ gives. Those are the things despised. So that's all I mean.
Right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Faith Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas is having a Biblical Worldview Conference February 5th and 6th, 2016 with the theme, Standing Firm in a Hostile World, to help Christians in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Biblical Christianity. Speakers will include Pastor David J. Weber, Attorney Mark Stern, Professor Alan Quist, Dr. Adam Francisco, and Pastor Joseph Abrahamson. Registration and details can be found at worldviewsa.org. Again, that's worldviewsa.org. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never spends time carefully working his way through whole sections of Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Well, the amount that you choose, that's right. When you join our crew, you pick your rank, and your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Our lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month, Gunner's Mate twenty four ninety five a month, Master Gunner forty nine ninety five a month, and Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. It's a great way to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, if you don't already support us, we truly can use your help. If you'd like to. Donate the uh, the old-fashioned way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's look at the book of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Here we go. Uh, you've described the uh, meaninglessness and the darkness and you have said that Christ is the answer. Um, Solomon, of course, didn't have Christ, and he has another answer. So can you distinguish the two answers and how they differed? Um, well, I'm not sure. Can you restate the question just so I... Yeah. yeah. Well, at the end of Ecclesiastes, yeah. Solomon has an answer for the meaninglessness, right. submitting to God's will. Right. Okay. Well, he doesn't mention Christ because he didn't know Christ. So can you distinguish the answer that you propose that Christ is the answer versus what Solomon has as the answer to the meaninglessness? Okay. So if I could differ with uh, what you said on this point, I think Solomon does know Christ and is well aware of Christ, Um, not least of which from his father David. Uh, who pens psalm after psalm about the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming Christ, um, whom he calls 
both his son and his Lord. In other words, David had an understanding of the incarnation of God, that when the Messiah came, he would be God in human flesh. When you look at David's other psalms, like Psalm 22, for example, you know that David, that David understood that uh, Christ, God in human flesh, would come to suffer under the Father's wrath on our behalf. Okay, so with that being David's theology, with Solomon called wise, and uh, with Jesus also having nothing negative to say about Solomon, the assumption uh, most Lutheran scholars, and I would say, in fact, most at least Western scholars who are faithful, would say that Solomon knew full well about Christ, knew full well about the Revelation. All right, but... Here's the Holy Spirit in his genius and Solomon in his genius. Okay? How many poems can you have explicitly about Christ? Countless. What if you wrote a poem that instead of being overtly about Christ was covertly about Christ? What if you wrote a poem uh, that didn't paint a like analogous to a painting. Instead of painting a picture of Jesus, you paint instead a silhouette of Jesus. Instead of painting the light of his face, you paint the darkness around him, and by the time you're done, you have an image of his face. Okay. I believe that that's the project that Solomon's engaged in. Preaching Christ by not preaching Christ. Uh, Preaching, preaching the law in such a way that the only possible answer is Christ or nothing. I think that that's what he's up to. Now, when he points to the judgment, I think he's hinting at that, and that's why I tried to connect his words with our Lord's words about judgment, the light coming into the darkness, and men loving the darkness more than the light. Um, that when he hints at the judgment, he's hinting at the resolution that will be the cross. In the Old Testament prophets, in the Old Testament writers, you often see this collapsed, the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. The coming of the Messiah and the final judgment. When we look at it, we see the coming of Christ as happening 2,000 years ago and judgment happening you know, who knows when, but in the future. And there's this great span. When they looked at it, they didn't see that great span. When they looked at it, they saw the coming of the Christ and the final judgment as one and the same theological event. And that's what's behind our Lord's words that I read yesterday in John, or yesterday, last week, in John 3, uh, where he says, this is the judgment. In other words, the last day has collapsed into my work and my presence. All right? Now, I think that Solomon is hip to this idea, the same way the other Old Testament writers are. When he's talking about judgment in the ultimate sense, like forget his way of doing theology, if you just interviewed Solomon about the judgment, he's going to say it's the coming of the Messiah. That's the judgment of the world. Um, articulated as we know it, we would say Christ hanging on the cross, that is the judgment of the world. God's judgment poured out on God's Son. That is the judgment of the world. Uh, the free gift of salvation given to all humanity. That is the judgment of the world. 
God proclaims us all innocent for the sake of Christ. Then the judgment of the world is that men reject this. And that's a further judgment, but all the same event. Okay. So when uh, Solomon is speaking of judgment, I think it's v- right to say that he has in mind the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the suffering servant, Psalm 22. And he is as close as he's going to come in Ecclesiastes to giving you the answer. You know, again, if you're going with that analogy of he's painting the black silhouette that when you look at it, it's the face of Christ. When, when he's all done, it's the face of Christ. When he's saying judgment, that's the closest he is to pointing to what's missing right in the middle, which is the face and cross of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. I hope I did. <laughs> um, when he concludes uh, at the end, fear God, we'll talk about this. Fear God for he's going to judge. You can perceive that in a law way and you can perceive that in a gospel way. In the same way that the cross can be perceived as law and gospel. In the same way that the person of Jesus can be law and gospel. And I think that that's the enigmatic nature of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in itself, because he's not just going to say at the end, Jesus is the answer, because that destroys the art, <laughs> that destroys the wisdom. Not everything in the Bible has to be written for a seven-year-old. Now, Luther says, thanks be to God, even a seven-year-old knows what the gospel and the church are. Great, right? And we believe the Bible is, our fancy word is uh, perspicuous. We believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. That is, the Scripture speaks so simply and so plainly that a human with the most basic level of cognition can understand what it's saying, what its central themes and messages are. Agreed. But not every book is exactly like that. Right? Revelation. Sort of written for adults. (laughs) Uh, Ezekiel. Parts of it. Written for adults. I would argue... uh, I would actually argue that all three of of Solomon's books, uh, The Song of Songs, written for adults, (laughs) uh, Proverbs, and uh, Ecclesiastes are written for adults. They're sophisticated pieces of work. They're meant to be artistic. They're not meant to be uh, accessible to all. Um, You can call that a little bit elitist if you want. I'd prefer to call it three-dimensional. There's a three-dimensionality to the scriptures where there's low-hanging fruit and there's very, very high-hanging fruit. There's obvious and there's subtle. There's bright light and there's dark shadow. And I find this, uh, I'm not, of course, there are many other church fathers who saw this, that God, here's another way of looking at the same thing I'm talking about. It's the way they've talked about it. That God reveals himself as light and shrouded in light. But the Psalms also say this bizarre thing about God from time to time, that he reveals himself in darkness and is shrouded in darkness. So if there's a revelation of light and there's a revelation of darkness, this, I would say, is the quintessential revelation of God via darkness. So even those phrases about the judgment are dark. They're dark in a way that we know fits the revelation of Jesus. Um, But without that revelation of Jesus, they're meant to leave you in darkness. Oh, wait, we have to get you a microphone. I'm sorry. So, Estella, hang on one second. Alice, and then we'll Um, come up here. 
in tagging on to that answer, we often try to reconcile ourselves with the whole Christian body. And it seems, by what you said on theology of glory versus theology of the cross, that there's a chasm of difference. But the chasm of difference is fundamental. It's not just like um, adiaphora. It's like, it's like huge. Yeah. And I grew up in a Lutheran church where they really recognized that and said, we are, we're just not the same. Right. But we, we want to be the same. We want to be all in fellowship as Christians. But it seems to me, from what you've been saying and from what I read, that we're just not. Right. And how do you reconcile that? I don't. Thanks. And it makes it, re- <laughs> and it, makes it really uncomfortable. You know, family get-togethers are really uncomfortable. Because why? Because the, the theology of Solomon writes itself into your DNA and ruins everything. You know, with much wisdom, there is much vexation. In other words, read and imbibe this book at your own peril. Because then when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table, which is coming soon, right? And the wonderful food is set out, and it's wonderful. Who's going to say it's not? And someone says, God is good. And what flashes in your mind is the starving kid in Africa. That's how Solomon ruins your day. (laughs) Um, Because Solomon is going to have you say, yes, God is good for providing this meal. But even if he didn't, and even if you were starving to death in Africa, isn't he still good? And not just a rhetorical question, (laughs) an actual question. God, are you good? We're going to get to that really poignantly in chapters 5 and 7 where the nature of religion itself is taken head-on, where we see religion, okay, this can be a little challenging to understand, make a distinction here, but religion is seen as a pursuit, as a toil, and the end of it is Solomon say that, will say that too is meaningless or vanity, the all is vanity. Okay. Um, I... I I don't know if you, well, if you have time or to explain a little bit about, for example, the tendency of all about me and mankind. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought sin started from the original sin with Adam and Eve, but it seems like God created them with that nature of sinning that just took a temptation talking about them how they can become eating the fruit and they fall into it because it's all about them (laughs) and they put aside what God had told them so it seems like God created men to be sinful so Jesus can take over and reign over I don't know, what do you have to say about that? Well, I don't want to dismiss what you have to say altogether because we're going to see in chapter 4 something that I think might be what you're getting after, okay? Um, What I do want to say is that humanity, uh, Adam and Eve, are listed under the label of good, of what God created. Not evil, not an inherently sinful, but God declares it all good, human beings included, okay? Now, when Satan corrupts 
the good creature that is mankind. Do you remember the temptation he uses? Uh, he says, you'll eat of it. Why? Yes, you will be like God. Okay, now that's the lie. What he should have actually said is you will think of yourself like God. Okay, you will have yourself as your God. And now think about that because what is, he actually, what is the serpent actually doing? God has said, do not eat of it. And he is saying, yes, you should eat of it. All right, so there's two voices in the garden, very simply. And whoever you choose as your voice will be your God. All right, but Satan doesn't, you know, what's the point of exchanging one God for another? So Satan's a little craftier than that. He doesn't just say, hey, you can have the real God or you can have me. He says, you can have the real God or you can become like him. Now, in becoming like him, which isn't true at all, we become the opposite of him because he would be selfless. We would be self-centered, selfish, self-full, right? To become like God, we would be selfless. In fact, that's the actual definition, you know, from... If you, if you will, from original righteousness. God is selfless, and he creates Adam and Eve to be like him. That is selfless. Uh, freely receiving what God has, freely giving and bestowing it. Uh, Satan's temptation corrupts all of that so that uh, we lose God and we have Satan instead. And the delusion of Satan, though, is that we make ourselves God. Yeah, we become like God not as he is at all, but rather in a very perverted way where we become our own gods. Okay. Anyway, that's my reflection on Genesis 1. But I don't want to dismiss what you have to say because one of the great accusations against God, my goodness, if atheists ever read the scriptures, they'd actually have interesting arguments to make uh, because the scriptures themselves outdo any atheistic accusation. And we're going to see that coming up in chapter 4. And part of that is, uh, you know, look, it would be better to have not even been born. Now, that's an accusation against the God who created you and made you and popped you into this world. Okay. Uh, so we're going to get there, and I think maybe that's what, what might harmonize with your thought. This may uh, follow on to, to the point that was just made, and that is all these evils that we see in the world and that Solomon identifies, none of them are a surprise to God. Right. Right. He, he saw them coming before he made the world. Yeah. Uh, yet he made the world anyway. Yeah. And so you, you want to say he must have had his reason. So now you get to the theology of glory people. They're saying God had some, yeah. isn't there some truth to that? God had some reason for the fact that you have cancer. Or whatever. I mean, I don't want to... It's no comfort to the person that has cancer. Yeah. But God had his reasons for making the world. Yeah. He knew it was coming. He knew you were going to have cancer. And he... And he, and he made his, this world anyway. Right. And he subjected the world to futility in such a way that a thing called cancer exists. Yeah. All right? that happened. And he gave it to you. And what is his reason in creating it and his reason in giving it to you? I mean, I, I, I think maybe the problem is, fine, is saying, oh, here, I found the reason. Here it is. Instead of saying, look, this world is full of sin. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think the whole pursuit is wrongheaded because the reason is obvious. And the pursuit to somehow defend or justify God is a pursuit precisely to evade the obvious fact that why cancer exists and why he gave it to you is because of judgment. The wages of sin is death. 
He subjected the world to cancer and Ebola and death because of sin. It's divine punishment. And we would do anything in the world to get out from under that nail that is being driven right through our heart by the hammer of God. Uh, even to the point of saying, no, that's not how God is. Let me explain him differently so he doesn't look that way. And God will have none of it because that's his whole point, to kill you in order to make you alive. Not to mend you or justify himself or justify you or make everything in the end make sense. I mean, that's also at play here. Is human beings are constantly trying to justify God as if he desperately needed it. You know, God isn't waiting for us to be to justify him, or for us to suddenly realize he's just, he isn't threatened by our distorted views in the least. He is who he is, and he's completely secure in that. He knows what he knows, and he does what he does. And to hell with what people think of him, honestly. And, and when you say... I'm sorry. When you say it's a, it's a judgment for sin, also you don't want to say... Oh, well, yeah, you lied to your mother that one time, and so that's why you have cancer now or something right. like that. It's sort of like it's, it's really it's a judgment for your being a sinner. Yeah, yeah. That's, well that's what it is. You, you know, so everything that goes wrong, it's not because, oh, I did this thing. I mean, maybe sometimes we can find that, mm-hmm. but usually it's just, no, you're a sinful being. You're a sinner in a world filled with sin, Yeah, and it's just too bad for you that it's like that. Yeah. You know, you're under judgment. Yeah, I think that's right. And and when asked, you know, when we try to get too big for our britches and try to sit in our little uh, armchairs and think about this, um, we have Jesus' words that are very stunning and very shocking. Do you remember uh, that people come to him and they explain this evil thing that has happened? Uh, some Jews are worshiping and Herod's men come And not only do they kill them in the midst of their worship, which is like, you know, you don't kill people when they're worshiping. Even if it's a false god, you just, you don't do that. Not only do they kill them, but they mingle the blood with the sacrifices so that they do the most abominable thing possible. And God let this happen. That's the dilemma in these people's minds. They come to Jesus Were these people worse sinners than others? The implication is God let this happen. Why? Were these people worse sinners than others? What does Jesus say? Well, let me tell you how God works. Let me reveal to you his system of judgment. Let me see if I can explain this in such a way that is palatable to you. What does Jesus say? You repent. You repent. In other words, none of your business... Because what Jesus has in mind that I think we become woefully blind to is that when we, whether through good intention or ill, judge God's judgments, we have set our seat where? On the throne of God and God below us. Even in that question, why does God allow this, is subjecting God to my judgment. I am now seated on the throne. When I ask that question of another, I am seated on the throne. God is there, and I've now put you, that other, in the position of God's attorney. And we as Christians very foolishly jump to the defense of God. Why is that foolish? Not because God is somehow indefensible. He's defensible. It's foolish because we agree to the game in the first place. We agree 
implicitly that that person has a right to sit on that judgment seat. God has the right to be in the dock, and we will save the day or not by defending him. In other words, by agreeing to the game, we agree to too much, which is why Jesus doesn't play the game but says, look, you repent. In fact, he heightens it. You know, the ancient equivalent of 9-11, the Tower of Siloam falling and killing innocent people. Jesus brings that to their attention and says, what about that? Or they were sinners. I tell you, no, but you repent. Unless you repent, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So look, Jesus won't even grant us to play those theological games. Because in playing those theological games, unwittingly, uh, we ascend to the throne of God and sit there. That's the, bla- that's the implicit inherent blasphemy that we don't even see in theodicy. Which is also why Solomon's so refreshing, because theodicy, he'll have none of it. Zero of it. Defense, theodicy being defense of God. Okay. Uh, nice, you. easy subject matter. Thank you for going into that. But I was just I just wanted to say too, in your explanation of the portrait or the poetry of Solomon's book, makes when you talk like that it makes me think of John and first John especially. Mm-hmm. The light comes into the world and the darkness. Yeah, it does not overcome, overcome it. it. Yeah, right. And um, Jesus talked about our deeds being, we love darkness. Right. And I think also of Shakespeare, I think he has a reference to this concept of a candle shining in the window. And he says, so shines a good deed, but so shines the good man in a dark world. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So just just to clarify, of course, the primary motif in Scripture is that God is light, right? And the world is dark. That is, the world is sinful and satanic, and God is light, and you have that play. And that's the dominant themes of light and darkness in the Scripture. But you also have a uh, subordinate theme or a minor theme running through the Scriptures. What happens about the false light? which the false light is actually what we would previously call darkness. But you know, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So there's also a motif of false light. The light of humanity. The light of Satan. And in this motif, the opposite of false light is darkness. Divine darkness. Good darkness. Darkness that destroys the false light. All right, And again, to bring it back to Solomon, what is his darkness that is destroying the false light? The false light, if you will, is that life has meaning and purpose without God and we're fine, thank you very much. That's light, but it's a false light. It's an idolatry. It's a loving of creation without the Creator. And to that false light, God speaks the darkness of a book like Ecclesiastes in order to to destroy it and lay it waste so that the true light can come and be seen. Okay, so there's, we have to realize that there are those two uh, motifs, if you will, where God is, again in the Psalms, revealed as, of course, light, but also revealed as one shrouded in darkness. 
And if uh, Satan will masquerade as an angel of light, God will come against him as an angel of darkness, destroying the false light so that the true light can be revealed. All right. Um, gosh, I wanted to get further today. That we've got some really fascinating stuff. I want to. I'll give you a cliffhanger. Chapter four, verse two. We're just literally about an inch away from it. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And not because they're all in heaven. <laughs> Remember what he said just previously. Everyone dies like dogs. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than living who are alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Better to be dead than alive, better than both of these to have not even existed. That is a radical idea. That is a, an idea that if you heard out of context, you would say, that doesn't sound very biblical. <laughs> and here it is in the Bible. All right. That resonates with what you were saying, I think, Estella. Let's examine that in depth next week. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter and my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>